this one is easy. So some of y'all should know what this is, if you can hear it. Do you know what the name of it is? Yes, for the beauty of the earth, good job. Uh, and this is the uh, John Rutter setting. And this uh, video is where the St. Philip's Choir will be singing God Willing in August. This is who uh, their regular choir that we will be supplanting uh, for that week. So it will be a high standard there. Uh, but we're going to talk a little bit more about that hymn later on uh, because it has an interesting story to it. So we are going to jump in uh, with our class and PowerPoint. So let me open this up with the word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this evening. We thank you for the gift of this book. We thank you for this chance to gather together uh, and consider the truths from your word um, that are expressed in this book. Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom um, for how to apply this uh, to our lives today. Lord, we pray that you would help us in all we do tonight to glorify you, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, let's start as usual by saying our verse together. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And this verse, I'm sure you see chapter after chapter, how really apt this verse is for what we see unfurling in this book. So just a word of welcome to anyone who is new, either in person or online, and a special welcome to the folks in Canada that are joining us for the first time tonight. There are a couple of words about how to approach this class. Uh, you can be on the beach, which means you just don't really do much of anything, but tune in when you feel like it. Um, and that's great. Don't read anything. Don't do any handouts. That's all good. I'm just glad to have you. Or you can snorkel where you pay attention on the parts you like. Um, but ignore the rest, or you can scuba dive, read all the handouts, uh, including the 18-page one from last week, and uh, listen to the music and study the words and the biographies of the authors and all that. Uh, but whatever level you want to come at, I'm happy to have you. I do commend to you the handouts tonight. They're very short, uh, front and back of one sheet. So I had mercy on you this week. Uh, if you are remote and you are not uh, on my email list yet, please uh, Google St. Philip's Church Charleston and then shoot me an email and I'll get you added to 
the email list and then you'll get all the resources. The other thing that I meant to do tonight was to make a little box, which I forgot to do, uh, but we are going to have a question box. And so in lieu of the box, we have this empty table over here. So uh, before you leave tonight, if you have a question about anything, if you would just scroll it on some kind of piece of paper and leave it on that table, I will collect them. And at some point I may or may not actually respond to them. So we'll see how that goes. All right, so um, review from previous classes. Remember abolition of man, it seems long ago when we were working on that, Lewis's philosophical essay uh, that many people think is one of the most important books of the past hundred years. And he had a major theme in each chapter. The first chapter is on the importance of objective value and the poison of subjectivism, the idea that when we move to thinking that we're in charge of everything and there's no sort of objective truth or beauty or goodness, um, we will find ourselves in a very bad way. And just a little commercial for our uh, Theology on Tap uh, podcast. Last night, that was on the topic of beauty. So if you're interested in this idea of beauty and how that relates to what we're talking about, you might want to give that a listen. The second point in the abolition of man is the idea of the Tao, the natural law, the law of human nature that controls really morality across ages and cultures um, that's really immutable. And then thirdly, the abolition of man, this idea that when men begin to control nature and think that they can reform the world and everything in it through their own power without God, that that actually means that a few men are gonna get into their head what everybody else needs to do and use nature as a means to control them. So um, the Ransom Trilogy, which we're in the last book of that, Out of the Silent Planet, is the space travel one that starts it off. Paralandra is a retelling of the Adam and Eve story and an unfallen world on Venus. And then that hideous strength, the one we're in right now, uh, which is a great hodgepodge of uh, dystopian future Arthurian legend, which we haven't really gotten to, but that's coming, um, and some very eerily prescient understandings of what was going to happen in culture uh, with a healthy dose of strong spiritual truth. So uh, the title, again, uh, from that line of the medieval poem, the shadow of that hideous strength, sex mile and more, it is of length about the Tower of Babel, the whole idea of people thinking they don't need God, they can in their own strength outdo God and surpass God. And Lewis is very frank that this is a story about devilry, that's a loaded term, particularly in 1940s England, for an academic to say that is actually shocking. Uh, and we're gonna see more and more about that. I'm gonna skip the cast of characters because it's pretty much the same ones um, that we've had the past few weeks. So chapter one of this, Jane Studdock is having these dreams, horrible dreams that she doesn't like. Her husband, Mark, um, is part of the inner circle at Bracton College, this ancient um, British college where uh, they don't have any students. They just have an endowment that pays them to sit around and think great thoughts. And they're supposed to pray for their founder, but they sort of forgot about that part. <laughs> and then they have been uh, approached by the nice, the nice, such a nice organization about selling the most precious part of the college, this ancient wood uh, that has a well that's associated with Merlin and the Arthurian legend 
And so they have a faculty meeting and say, none of you are gonna get paid unless we manage to sell this off because we don't have any money left. And so then there are the Dembles um, who are uh, a family from another college um, where Dr. Dumble had been Jane's professor in college and they are interested in this whole thing about Merlin. So in the next chapter, um, Mark, who's this young academic is very excited because he's invited to this posh dinner with the um, intelligentsia and the uh, top administrators of this college. He's very much seduced by this lure of the inner ring and thinks he's really hot stuff because they've noticed him. Um, and then they start talking to him about the nice. And he gets very interested in that and he's invited to visit. And he, this is like being invited to visit the White House or Buckingham Palace for him. He's so excited that his whole life is about being recognized and having other people think he's important. So he thinks this is the greatest thing ever. So meanwhile, Jane is still having these nightmarish dreams and visions and very upset about them. Mark and Jane have a, sort of a brief reconciliation and then she's horrified with herself that they were reconciled and she's back to wanting to be an independent career woman. And so they have this journey that we spent a long time unpacking where they're going in opposite directions. He in a sports car, she on a slow train. And then chapter three, um, Mark gets to the nice headquarters in the blood transfusion uh, place. And he has all of these weird conversations with all the executives. And all he's trying to do is find out whether they're offering him a job or not. And he thinks he's having an interview, but he's not really sure. And he keeps trying to ask them, Are, am I hired? Do I have a job? What does the job involve? And he can't get any answers from anyone. And they just look at him like he has two heads. So he doesn't know what to make of any of that. And then he runs into one of his old colleagues who's there, who's a brilliant scientist. And he says, I'm leaving the NICE. It's not what I thought it was. If you're smart, you'll get out of here. Mark doesn't want to hear that. Jane goes to the community of St. Anne's on the Hill, which is loaded with all sorts of Christian symbolism when she goes up there. Um, to see this woman who is uh, reputed to have the ability to interpret dreams. And Jane's idea is she just wants to be cured. She thinks she has a disease, which is why she's having these dreams. And she just wants to get rid of them. She doesn't care what they mean. She doesn't care about any of that. She just wants them to go away. And she finds that the people at St. Anne's are singularly unhelpful about that because they tell her she has this great gift and that they need her dreams and that they're, they're evil people that are looking for her that want to use her for her dreams. And that totally freaks her out. And she's like, I'm out of here. She takes off and tries to forget the whole thing happened. Mark, meanwhile, is still at the NICE and he is told that the only two people at the NICE that matter are the deputy director, Wither, such a great name, sucking the life out of things, and then Fairy Hardcastle, um, who was this frightening, um, militant, large woman um, who was head of the secret police. And she wants to establish an alliance with Mark. So that is the end of chapter three. So that brings us to chapter four for tonight, the liquidation of anachronism. That's a lot of polysyllabic words. 
So liquidation, of course, means to eliminate. And an anachronism is something that is out of time or doesn't fit into the time period. So you can only imagine what kinds of anachronisms may get liquidated in this chapter. And you will notice as we go through that this title operates on multiple levels here. There are so many layers in this, and y'all have no idea how much I'm restraining myself. So I'm determined we're going to get through this chapter tonight. Uh, so we'll see if that happens. So the chapter opens up. Mother Dumble arrives at Jane's in a panic, saying a construction crew with all this heavy equipment has shown up at their cottage under orders from the nice. And they've cut down all of the trees, which is in the ancient wood right next to uh, the wall of Bracton Wood. And that they have told her and her husband that they've got to be out of the cottage by eight o'clock the next morning. They've lived in there for decades, all their stuff. You know how academics are with books and all that. All of that, they've got to be out of there at eight o'clock the next morning and they're bulldozing the cottage. So she is in a panic. And there are these huge trucks um, and a huge crane and also Ivy Mags, who is uh, Jane Studdock's char, her cleaning woman, also has a cottage there that they're um, demolishing as well. So they don't know what to do. Jane tells Mother Dumble she can stay at Jane's house. And that night, while Mother Dumble is staying there, Jane wakes up screaming, screaming, screaming bloody murder and terrifies Mother Dumble. And she has had another one of these dreams. And in the dream, she sees this man being pulled out of his car. It's like a carjacking, pulled out of his car, beaten around the head with metal pipes, and then left for dead next to his car at four o'clock in the morning. So meanwhile, Mark is at the nice, the nice, and he meets a clergyman at the nice. And so you might think, oh, this is a good thing. Maybe there's some good influence at the nice. <laughs> you would be wrong. Reverend Strake, such a great name, um, nicknamed the Mad Parson. So Reverend Strake believes the NICE program must be carried out with violence because Mark, and Mark is just shocked by this. Because remember, this is the Church of England. They're very polite, um, but this is not polite. And Strake repudiates any idea of the afterlife. And he also repudiates all organized religion. And instead, he interprets the gospel to mean that Jesus wants to bring about the kingdom of God and wants us to bring about the kingdom of God right here and right now through the instrument of science as enforced by the nice to whom every knee shall bow. Now, that ought to make you uncomfortable. Who is supposed to have every knee bow to them? Jesus, not the nice. The nice is not. In case you haven't figured that out, the nice is not Jesus, okay? Um, so Strake believes that he is a prophet. He believes he's a prophet. And he says, Mark has no choice about being used by the nice because no one goes out of the nice. Those who try to turn back will perish in the wilderness, he says. Meanwhile, Mark notices his wallet has gone missing. So Mark is very disturbed, to his credit, by this interview with this crazy clergyman. 
So meanwhile, they go to a nice committee meeting and Deputy Director Weather is going on and on with doublespeak where Mark has no idea what's going on. And then all of a sudden, the Deputy Director announces that Bill Hengist, the professor, has been found murdered, beaten to death, and lying near his car about 4 a.m. And the nice police, the nice police. Why would the nice need a secret police force, inquiring minds want to know? The nice police, led by the frightening Miss Hardcastle, were the first people on the scene, and the local police in Scotland Yard are allowing the nice police to take the lead in the case and cooperating wonderfully. And after he expresses some regrets about Hengist leaving the nice, Weather delivers a little obituary about him. So meanwhile, back in Edgestow, Jane enjoys spending the morning with Mother Dumble in the house and tries to convince herself since she had this long talk about her dreams and not being interfered with that they're all going to go away and it's all going to be fine. And Mother Dumble tells her that Ivy Maggs has left Edgestow and has gone to St. Anne's, that same place where Jane went about the dreams. And then Jane runs into Subwarden Curry from Bracton College when she's in the village, and he is full of news that Bill Hingest has been murdered. And he tells her exactly what happened, and she completely melts down. She ducks into a coffee shop shaking because she realizes that the dreams have not ended. She's shattered, she's disgusted, and she realizes that she actually saw the murder of this man that she knows. And she feels despair because she's powerless to stop these visions. She doesn't want to go back to St. Anne's because she feels like somehow they're mixed up in all of this. So meanwhile, back to the nice, um, Kosser, sorry, that's misspelled, Kosser, who is the sociology head at the nice, tells Mark that they have a job to do. And so Mark is finally excited because if they have a job to do, that must mean he has a job. So that's good, right? But then he finds out that the job is to prepare a report on a village called Cure Hardy. Now you'll remember that is one of the beautiful villages that Jane's train went through on that symbolic journey. And Mark is told that the Nice is planning to take the Wind River, which presently goes through Edgestow and is the most beautiful part of Edgestow, and redirect it. Um, they're going to straighten it out because it's inefficient because it has bends in it. So they're going to straighten the river out. They're going to take it out of Edgestow and they're going to have it go right through the middle of where Cure Hardy is. So they're just going to get rid of Cure Hardy. They're going to demolish the entire village and put the river through there. Um, the only problem with that is it's a major tourist attraction. It is one of those, if you've got one of those books, the most hundred beautiful villages of England, it's one of those kinds of places. And it is full of the proverbial thatched cottages with the little roses on the picket fence and all of that. And people love it, but they have to write propaganda to convince people that it is in the public interest to get rid of this place. And so Mark's job is to list all the reasons that this beauty spot must be gotten rid of 
focusing on poor sanitary practices and how unhealthy old buildings are and that they're undesirable inhabitants like farmers that live there and out-of-date agricultural practices. So they're going to write this report first. They've never been there, of course, but they're going to write the report saying why well, it must be destroyed and go to the village after. So when they actually have finished writing this report and Mark's pangs of conscience, he just doesn't listen to, they go to Cure Hardy and Mark, against his will, finds that he is deeply moved by how beautiful it is, something that his relationship with Jane has awakened in him. And the beauty of it reminds Mark of being on holiday when he was a child and visiting other English villages. And he tries to look at the village disdainfully through his sociologist scientific view, and he just can't help it. He just loves the village. And they go in this old pub that's dark and full of years and you know, leaning walls and all that. And Mark thinks it is so cool and he just loves it. And finally, he can't help himself. He says to Kasser, that what a great place this is. And Kasser is horrified. And he says, it's not their department to think about whether this is good or not. And Mark has this just overwhelming sense that Kasser is a bore and he's sick about the nice. He thinks the nice is just a bad place. But that doesn't last long because the inner lure of the inner ring is after him. So he goes home to see Jane but he doesn't really want to tell her anything. She doesn't want to tell him anything about what's going on with her. So they don't really have much of a conversation at all. She gets very nervous that he's not sharing with her about what's going on at the Nikes. And she's worried he's given up his fellowship at Bracton. Um, and he reassures her that he hasn't, which isn't actually the full truth. So meanwhile, back at Bracton, um, the fellows are having a faculty meeting over dessert and wine and their beautiful historic room with the huge window in it. And they can hear the nice um, construction crews outside and they're so loud that they can hardly carry on their faculty meeting. And so they're talking about Mark, Lord Feverstone says they'll get a formal resignation. Um, the noise gets louder and louder and louder. They hear gunshots. They wonder if people are being murdered. And finally, the big, which I'm imagining, a giant Palladian window, all of a sudden is just shattered as stones and shards of glass all come through, and then the chapter ends. <laughs> yes, so much going on. Are right, there are so many good passages in here that we need to talk about. I'm going to try to read them really quickly. So here we go. So, without a doubt, thought Mark, this must be the mad person that Bill the Blizzard, that is Bill Hingis, was talking of. He'd been walking with Reverend Strake in the garden. Hmm, in the garden. Do not imagine, said Mr. Strake, that I indulge any dreams of carrying out our program without violence. There will be resistance. They will gnaw their tongues and not repent. We are not to be deterred. It is no part of our witness to preserve that organization of ordered sin which is called society. To that organization, the message which we have to deliver is a message of absolute despair. Does it sound familiar? Hmm. Now, that is what I meant, said Mark, when I said that your point of view and mine must in the long run be incompatible. The preservation, which involves a thorough planning of society, is just precisely the end I have in view. 
I do not think there is or can be any other end. The problem, of course, is quite different for you because you, as a clergyman, look forward to something else, something better than human society in some other world. With every thought and vibration of my heart, with every drop of my blood, said Mr. Strake, I repudiate that damnable doctrine of the afterlife of the kingdom of God, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. That is precisely the subterfuge by which the world, the organization, and the body of death has sidetracked and emasculated the teaching of Jesus and turned it into priestcraft and mysticism. The plain demand of the Lord for righteousness and judgment here and now, the kingdom of God is to be realized here in this world, and it will be. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. So there's a lot going on in here, but this is seriously bad theology, in case you didn't notice. Um, so we've got some false gospel going on, which we're warned about in the scriptures. We've got violence, um, violence as a means to bring in the kingdom of God, uh, which is not anywhere in the New Testament. Um, we have the overthrow of society. It's a small little thing. Overthrow of society and deny of the eternal kingdom of God. But besides that, it's great. So, straight continues. He's really on a roll. In that name, the name of Jesus, I dissociate myself completely from all the organized religion that has yet been seen in the world. And at the name of Jesus, Mark, who would have lectured on abortion or perversion to an audience of young women without a qualm, felt himself so embarrassed that he knew his cheeks were slightly reddening. This was exactly the kind of conversation he could not endure. And never since the well-remembered misery of scripture lessons at school had he felt so uncomfortable. For mark my words, this thing is going to happen. The kingdom is going to arrive in this world, in this country. The powers of science are an instrument, an irresistible instrument as all of us in the nice know. And why are they an irresistible instrument? And poor Mark, he tries to answer. Because science is based on observation, suggested Mark. No, silly boy. They are an irresistible instrument, shouted straight, because they're an instrument in his hand, an instrument of judgment as well as of healing. That is what I couldn't get any of the churches to see. They're blinded, blinded by their filthy rags of humanism, their culture and humanitarianism and liberalism. I have come to stand alone. The only prophet left. I knew that he was coming in power. And therefore, where we see power, we see the sign of his coming. And that is why I find myself joining with communists and materialists and anyone else who is really ready to expedite the coming. The feeblest of these people here has the tragic sense of life, the ruthlessness, the total commitment, the readiness to sacrifice all merely human values, which I could not find amid all the nauseating cant of the organized religions. Well, you could say he has a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. Um, so he is all about scientism. There's a great handout on scientism that I would commend to you. Remember, Lewis is a big fan of science. Science is a gift of God. Scientism is the idea that science is the be-all and end-all, and it explains everything, and it is to be worshipped. So, straight keeps going. Sweep away all idea of cooperation. Does Clay cooperate with the potter? Did Cyrus cooperate with the Lord? These people would be used. I shall be used too. Instruments, vehicles. 
But here comes the point that concerns you, young man. You have no choice whether you will be used or not. There is no turning back once you have set your hand to the plow. No one goes out of the nice. Those who try to turn back will perish in the wilderness. But the question is whether you're content to be one of the instruments which is thrown aside when it has served his turn. One which having executed judgment on others is reserved for judgment itself. Or will you be among those who enter on the inheritance? For it's all true, you know, it is the saints who are going to inherit the earth here in England, perhaps within the next 12, then suddenly lowering his voice, Drake added, the real resurrection is even now taking place. The real life everlasting here in this world, you will see it. All right, this is very creepy, in case you didn't notice that. Um, there is all sorts of misquoting of scripture and misapplication of scriptural concepts all through this. It is a quagmire of really bad doctrine and of trying to build an argument using religious language that is absolutely 100% opposite of everything that Jesus ever taught. And this whole idea that everyone is to be a slave to this cause um, is really deeply disturbing. There's this whole seduction of the inner ring. Are you going to be on the inside where you get the good stuff? Or are you going to be cast aside? So false gospel all the way. So then back to Edgestow, where these hordes of people have been just invaded this village with all of these people speaking some other language and giant trucks and machines that are pulling up all the gardens and knocking down the walls and people's houses. And Mother Dimble says this, oh yes, there are dozens of what look like policemen all over the place. And I didn't like the look of them either, swinging some kind of truncheon things, like what you'd see in an American film. Remember, English policemen are very polite they don't carry guns, they don't shoot people, they don't smack people over the head. Um, and so she thinks this is like Elliot Ness or something like that. Um, so she says, do you know, Jane, Cecil and I both thought the same thing. We thought it's almost as if we'd lost the war. And so this whole idea that they've been so focused on fighting this war against evil, while meanwhile, right in their backyard, evil has been growing. So now Jane and Mother Dimble. Lewis is wanting us to notice a contrast between these two women, in case you didn't pick up on that. Jane found Mother Dimble an embarrassing person to share a room with. Look, Mark has been embarrassed by the name of Jesus. And look what Jane's going to be embarrassed by. An embarrassing person to share a room with because she said prayers. <gasps> it was quite extraordinary, Jane thought, how this put one out. One didn't know where to look, and it was so difficult to talk naturally again for several minutes after Mrs. Dumble had risen from her knees. Are you awake now, said Mrs. Dumble's voice quietly in the middle of the night. Yes, said Jane. I'm sorry, did I wake you up? Was I shouting? Yes, you were shouting about someone being hit on the head. I saw them killing a man, a man in a big car driving along a country road. Then he came to a crossroads and turned off to the right past some trees, and there was someone standing in the middle of the road waving a light to stop him. I couldn't hear what they said. I was too far away. 
They must have persuaded him to get out of the car somehow, and he was talking to one of them. The light fell full on his face. He wasn't the same old man I saw in my other dream. He hadn't a beard, only a mustache, and he had a very quick kind of proud way. He didn't like what the man said to him, and presently he put up his fist and knocked him down. Another man behind him tried to hit him on the head with something, but the old man was too quick and turned round in time. Then it was rather horrible, but rather fine. There were three of them at him, and he was fighting them all. I've read about that kind of thing in books, but I never realized how one would feel about it. Of course, they got him in the end. They beat his head about terribly with the things in their hands. They were quite cool about it and stooped down to examine him and make sure he was really dead. The light from the lantern seemed all funny. It looked as if it were made long uprights of light, sort of rods all around the place. But perhaps I was waking up by then. No thanks, I'm all right. It was horrid, of course, but I'm not really frightened. Not the way I would have been before. I'm more sorry for the old man. So we see here that whole idea of the power of prayer, that it's really, it sets Jane um, completely off her balance, just the mere act of Mother Dumble praying. And then this whole idea of the importance of gifts, Jane is absolutely seeing things that are real, and yet she's completely dismissing it, doesn't want to have anything to do with it. It says, oh, I'm fine. This is just normal that people have things like this. So that lasts long enough for her to hear from the college official about the murder. And then as soon as she hears about the murder, she's right back into a state of abject terror. She says this. She felt she must sit down. The death of Hengist in itself meant nothing to her. She'd met him only once, and she'd accepted from Mark the view that he was a disagreeable old man and rather a snob. But the certainty that she herself, in her dream, had witnessed a real murder shattered at one blow all the consoling pretenses with which she had begun the morning. It came over her with sickening clarity that the affair of her dreams, far from being ended, was only beginning. The bright, narrow little life which she had proposed to live was being irremediably broken into. It would drive her mad, she thought, to face it alone. The other alternative was to go back to Miss Ironwood. But that seemed to be only a way of going deeper into all this darkness. This manner at St. Anne's, this kind of company was mixed up in it. She didn't want to get drawn in. It was unfair. It wasn't as if she'd asked much of life. All she wanted was to be left alone. And the thing was so preposterous, the sort of thing which, according to all the authorities she'd hitherto accepted, could not really happen. It's this whole idea, I am the captain of my own soul. There's no one that has any claim on me. I can be what I want. I'm unfettered. I am free. I am woman. Hear me roar. All of that. And this whole idea of, is there free agency? Do you get to just do whatever you want to? Or does God have a plan? Is God at work? Is God shaping the events and the world that impact individuals' lives? So now we get to this part about the village of Cure Hardy. It's about the village of Cure Hardy, said Kosser when they were seated. You see, all that land at Bragdon Wood is going to be little better than a swamp once they get to work. Remember, this is one of the most beautiful places in England they're talking about. Little better than a swamp. Why the hell we wanted to go there, I don't know. 
Anyway, the latest plan is to divert the wind, block up the old channel through Edgestow altogether. Look, here's Schillingbridge, 10 miles north of the town. It's to be diverted there and brought down an artificial channel here to the east where the blue line is and rejoin the old riverbed down here. The university will hardly agree to that, said Mark. What would Edgestow be without the river? This would be like somebody coming in and saying, um, we are going to bring all the garbage from New York City and fill in Charleston Harbor. Thank you. Yeah. So Mark is horrified by this. So Kosser says, we've got the university by the short hairs. You needn't worry about that. Anyway, it's not our job. The point is the new wind must come right through Cure Hardy. Now look at your contours. Cure Hardy is in this narrow little valley. Eh? Oh, you've been there, have you? That makes it all the easier. I don't know these parts myself. Well, the idea is to dam the valley at the southern end and make a big reservoir. You'll need a new water supply for Edgestone now that it's to be the second city in the country. But what happens to Cure Hardy, said Mark? That's another advantage. We build a new model village. It's to be called Jules Hardy or Wither Hardy. Jules and Wither being officials of the nice, so modest of them. To be called Jules Hardy or Wither Hardy, four miles away, over here on the railway. I say, you know, there'll be the devil of a stink about this. Cure Hardy's famous. It's a beauty spot. There are the 16th century almshouses and a Norman church and all that. Exactly. That's where you and I come in. We've got to make a report on Cure Hardy. We'll run out and have a look around tomorrow, but we can write rest of the report today. It ought to be pretty easy. If it's a beauty spot, you can bet it's insanitary. That's the first point to stress. Then we've got to get out some facts about the population. I think you'll find it consists almost entirely of the two most undesirable elements, small rentiers and agricultural laborers. Now, there's several things that are so interesting about this. Notice the guy, the people that are doing all the planning of the spot, they've never been there. They've never even looked at it. They are bureaucrats in an ivory tower deciding what's best for the little people in the name of efficiency um, without knowing what they're talking about or bothering to find out what the situation actually is. It is pure utilitarianism, but not even utilitarianism done well because it's based on faulty premises. And it's all about remaking the world that we, this world that God made, it's got so many problems with it. We need to redirect the rivers. Why are there bends in rivers? Who would ever be so stupid to put a bend in a river? Rivers should be straight. And um, we're going to remake the world to straighten everything out. So then the next little part. It took them the rest of the day so that Kosser and he came into dinner late and without dressing. This gave, that doesn't mean they went without clothes. It means they went without formal evening attire. This gave Mark a most agreeable sensation and he enjoyed the meal too. Although he was among men he had not met before, he seemed to know everyone within the first five minutes and to be joining naturally in the conversation. He was learning how to talk their shop. So here he is where he's so upset on the one hand about having to write this propaganda to destroy this village. But as soon as that inner ring starts calling, he's all about 
his ambition and that takes over. So the next day they go to cure Hardy. How nice it is, said Mark to himself. Next morning as the car left the main road at Duke's Eaton, another place on James train ride, descending the bumpy little lane into the long valley where Cure Hardy lay. Mark was not as a rule very sensitive to beauty, but Jane and his love for Jane had already wakened him a little bit in this respect. Perhaps the winter morning sunlight affected him all the more because he had never been taught, hmm, never been taught, remember abolition of man, to regard it as specially beautiful. And it therefore worked on his senses without interference. The earth and sky had the look of things recently watched. The brown fields looked as if they would be good to eat. And those in grass set off the curves of the little hills as close clipped hair sets off the body of a horse. The sky looked further away than usual, but also clearer, so that the long slender streaks of cloud, dark slate color against the pale blue um, had edges as clear as if they were cut out of cardboard. Every little copse was black and bristling as a hairbrush. And when the car stopped in Cure Hardy itself, the silence that followed the turning off of the engine was filled with the noise of rooks that seemed to be calling, wake, 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 hello. Wake, wake. And then Mark's companion, bloody awful noises birds make, said Kosser. Got your map? Now he plunged at once into business. So this whole idea of being awake to beauty, not being asleep. Remember our theme verse about being awake. Mark has started waking up to this beauty. And so he is, he is entranced by it. But his uh, teammate from the nice has such a calloused heart that he's totally immune to all of it. So Mark continues, I was thinking of the place, uh, the pub that they're in, the one with the leany walls, it's all dark. You mean this, said Kosser, looking around the room. I should have thought it was just the sort of thing we want to get rid of. No sunlight, no ventilation. Haven't much use for alcohol myself read the Miller report, but if people have got to have their stimulants, I'd like to see them administered in a more hygienic way. Hmm. Sort of like Brave New World. Nutrition isn't my subject. You'll want to ask stock about that. What I'm really thinking about, said Mark, is not this pub, but really the whole village. Of course, you're right. That sort of thing has to go, but it had its pleasant side. We'll have to be careful that whatever we're building up in its place will really be able to beat it on all levels, not merely in efficiency. Oh, architecture and all that, said Kosser. Well, that's hardly my line, you know. That's more for someone like Wither. Have you nearly finished? All at once it came over Mark what a terrible bore this little man was. And at the same moment, he felt utterly sick of the nice. But he reminded himself, fatal flaw, that one could not expect to be in the interesting set at once. There would be better things later on. Anyway, he had not burnt his boats. Perhaps he would chuck up the whole thing and go back to Bracton in a day or two, but not at once. It would only be sensible to hang on for a bit and see how things shaped up. So this whole idea all through scripture of flee temptation and Mark is not fleeing, he is embracing it and the whole idea of the danger of double-mindedness. 
he is just going back and forth and back and forth. And because he has no absolutes, he has nothing to guide him in that. All right, so then we get to the final scene of the chapter. For about 300 years, this common room at Bracton College had been one of the pleasant, quiet places of England. It was in Lady Alice, which is one of the courtyards. And the windows at its eastern end looked out on the river and on Bragdon Wood, across a little terrace where the fellows were in the habit of taking their dessert on summer evenings. At this hour and season, these windows were of course shut and curtained. And from beyond them came such noises as had never been heard in that room before. Shouts and curses and the sound of lorries heavily drumming past or harshly changing gear rattling of chains, drumming of mechanical drills, clanging of iron, whistles, thuddings, and an all-pervasive vibration. Saiva sonare verbera, tuum stridor feri tritaqui caternae, which is, of course, Latin for the sound of the savage whip and dragging of chains and clank of iron, um, which is from Virgil's Aeneid. Uh, a description of the noise coming up from hell. And this is the Latin quotation um, that Glossop, one of the old guard, um, speaks to old canon jewel as they sit by the fire while this is going on. So they're very aware of what's happening. For beyond those windows, scarcely 30 yards away on the other side of the wind, the conversion of an ancient woodland into an inferno of mud and noise and steel and concrete was already going on apace. Several members, even of the progressive element, those who had rooms on this side of the college, had already been grumbling about it. Curry himself had been a little surprised by the form which his dream had taken now that it was a reality. But he was doing his best to brazen it out. And though his conversation with Feverstone had to be conducted at the top of their voices, he made no allusion to this inconvenience. I can't hear, yelled Curry. Is this noise getting worse or am I getting deaf? I say, Subwarden, shouted Bryceacre from beyond Feverstone. What the devil are your friends outside doing? Can't they work without shouting, asked someone else? It doesn't sound like work at all to me, said a third. Listen, said Glossop suddenly. That's not work. Listen to the feet. It's more like a game of rucker. It's getting worse every minute, said Rayner. Next moment, nearly everyone in the room was on his feet. What was that, shouted one. They're murdering someone, called Glossop. There's only one way of getting a noise like that out of a man's throat. Where are you going, asked Curry. I'm going to see what's happening, said Glossop. Curry, go and collect all the shooters in college. Someone ring up the police. I shouldn't go out if I were you, said Feverstone, who would remain seated and was pouring himself out another glass of wine. Hmm. It sounds as if the police or something was there already. What do you mean? Listen, there. I thought that was their infernal drill. Listen, my God, you really think it's a machine gun? Look out, look out, said a dozen voices at once as a splintering of glass became audible and a shower of stones fell onto the common room floor. A moment later, several of the fellows had made a rush for the windows and put up the shutters. Then they were all standing, staring at one another and silent but for the noise of their heavy breathing. Glossop had a cut on the forehead and on the floor lay the fragments of that famous east window on which Henrietta Maria had once cut her name with a diamond. So this is all about 
progress and the destruction of the irreplaceable, the irreplaceable, the danger of complacency and this whole idea of all that is necessary for evil to triumph is, yes, for good men to do nothing. And that is exactly what you see playing out here. These people have been played, they have not stood up, and now they are reaping the consequences of their complacency. So once again, there are about a zillion themes in here that we have just skated over the top of, but just in case you missed them, we're gonna run through them one more time. False gospel, violence, the overthrow of society, the denial of the eternal kingdom of God, scientism, rejection of the church, slavery to a cause, the seduction of the inner ring, evil and why vigilance matters, the power of prayer, the importance of gifts, free agency and who's in control, utilitarianism and efficiency, remaking the world with man in charge, being awake to beauty and its importance to life, fleeing temptation, the danger of double-mindedness, progress and the destruction of the irreplaceable, the danger of complacency, and all that's necessary for evil triumph is for good men to do nothing. So you'll notice there's a dichotomy going on in these themes. There are the things that are evil and awful that are tending toward the destruction of everything um, that we would think of as good, true, and beautiful. And then there are other things like prayer, um, beauty, that are, that are breaking in and slowing this um, downward spiral that's going on. And we haven't even gotten started in this book yet. Yeah, put on your seatbelts. Yeah, so some practices of hope and wisdom. Let's say this verse um, from Philippians 4 together. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things, which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So a couple of practices. First, cling, cling, you know, like for dear life, cling to sound doctrine and right teaching. Think about Reverend Strait. Think about how many clergy there are like that out there in the world. And we are very blessed um, in this church and in this diocese to have sound teaching, yeah, but yeah. we must cling to that. And there is this great verse from 2 Timothy, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Yeah, so that's happening right in front of us. Two, reject any movement grounded on the premise that the ends justify the means. One of the things that you see Jesus teaching over and over and over again, that what you do is important, but how you do it is perhaps even more important than what you do. And you'll notice Jesus is the only 
religious teacher who ever taught, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That is one of the unique contributions of the Christian gospel. And we live in a culture that is just pervaded with this idea that if you have what you believe to be a noble end, then anything that you do, lies, cheating, slander, whatever it might be, it is all justified if it's accomplishing what you believe is a just result. So this great verse from 1 Peter, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That is a very high standard that we as Christians are called to. Thirdly, use your gifts and participate fully in the church, the body of Christ. We live in a culture that is all too prone to say, I've got my relationship with Jesus. It's me and Jesus against the world. I don't need the church. I don't need the people in the church. As long as I read the Bible and pray, um, I'm good. That's what it means to be a Christian. The only problem with that is that's not in the New Testament anywhere. Um, the New Testament is all about a body of people being called together to follow Christ together. Jesus calls people to follow him, but they are following in a company. And so this idea is so important. We need each other, we need our gifts, and we need to use them in the body of Christ. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another, not yourself, to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. That'll preach, but I don't have time. Um, fourth practice, be awake to beauty. Be awake to beauty on a daily basis and cultivate wonder based on who God is. And you need margin in your life to do this. If you're constantly in a hurry, you are not going to be able to do this because being able to see beauty takes time. So I think for all of us, we need to slow down. Fifthly, be alert to the dangers of complacency and inaction and regularly and prayerfully examine your life and commitments. And this from Luke 21, for the simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency, oh, sorry, this is the Proverbs one, and the complacency of fools destroys them. And then from Luke, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. That's a little chilling, but it's a good reminder to us. It's so easy to be complacent and be like Scarlett O'Hara and say, I'll think about that tomorrow. Um, <laughs> but there are things that we're called to think about right now. So um, I want to close uh, going right back to where we started for the beauty of the earth. And I don't know how many of you have ever heard of Foliot Sanford Pierpoint. Probably no one. This is the only hymn that he ever wrote. He wrote it when he was 28 years old 
It was a beautiful afternoon in the spring in 1863, and he went outside on a hilltop outside his hometown of Bath, England, and he was looking over the country and how beautiful it was and the winding Avon River. And inspired by this view to think about God's gifts and creation and, and the church, he wrote this text. And I want to invite you to just, I know you've sung this and heard it, but just read these words aloud with me. For the beauty of the earth, for the beauty of the skies, for the love which from our birth over and around us lies. Lord of all, to thee we raise this our joyful hymn of praise. For the beauty of each hour, of the day and of the night, hill and vale and tree and flower, sun and moon and stars of light, Lord of all, to thee we raise this our joyful hymn of praise. For the joy of human love, brother, sister, parent, child, friends on earth and friends above, for all gentle thoughts and mild, Lord of all, to thee we raise this our joyful hymn of praise. For each perfect gift of thine to our race so freely given, graces human and divine, flowers of earth and buds of heaven. Lord of all, to thee we raise this our joyful hymn of praise. Let us pray. Father, we confess to you how blind we are to the beauty of each perfect gift of thine, that you scatter a brow abroad with profligate generosity and grace. Lord, we pray that you would awaken us to open our eyes, to behold that beauty and wonder. Lord, we pray that you would awaken us from complacency when we need to cling to your word, to pray in front of other people, to share your word with boldness, to stand up for what is right. Lord, we pray that you would help us to use the gifts that you have given us to serve your people. Lord, that we might make uh, a difference in this world for your kingdom in the way that Jesus would have us do it. Lord, we thank you for the words of wisdom from this book, and most especially for the words of wisdom from your book. And we thank you for this time tonight and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for coming. Please try to meet somebody that you haven't met uh, before you go. Reminder, if you want to have a question to send to me, just leave it on this table where Bob Huddleston is, um, and I will perhaps answer those um, sometime in the next few weeks.